You are listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM at Wiley, Todd Zipper. I am Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Josh Burzen, founder and CEO of the Josh Burzen Company. Josh is an industry analyst, researcher, educator, and technology analyst covering all aspects of corporate HR, training, talent management, recruiting, leadership, and workplace technology. Josh is the author of several books and the dean of the Burzen Academy. As dean, he guides the Academy's program offerings and shares relevant research and insights so HR and talent professionals stay current on the trends and practices necessary in the modern world of work. Josh is also a keynote speaker and a regular blogger and is frequently featured in publications such as Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and the Wall Street Journal. The key takeaways from our discussion today. First, why all businesses have a skills gap and how the evolution of business is making it worse. Second, why power skills are the most important and in-demand yet hardest to teach. Third, why educators and business leaders should be thinking about developing capabilities, not just skills. Fourth, why apprenticeships and higher trained deploy models create a golden circle of long-term value for employers and employees alike. And lastly, why higher education institutions must work closely with employers to stay relevant in this changing economy. Welcome, Josh, and thanks so much for joining me today on An Educated Guest. Thank you, Todd. I'm excited to be here. All right. So would you mind starting to tell our audience about your background and what led you to where you are today? Well, it was a bunch of accidental experiences, but I spent 15 or 20 years in tech as sales, marketing, business development, and product engineering, technical support, and was laid off from an online learning company in the year 2000 during the last big dot-com problem and realized that I always liked to write. And at that point in time, nobody understood online learning. So I found myself a little gig work to write a research report on online learning. And that went so well, I realized I had a new career as an analyst. And I went from learning to leadership development to recruiting to all these other areas of HR. And that's what's been, that's what happened to me. It was a complete accident. So I want to dig into your work with the Josh Burson Company and the, the Academy. Uh, but let's talk briefly about your latest book. It's called Irresistible. I just finished with it. The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring Employee-Focused Organizations. I know a lot of us need those secrets and need to implement them. So what was the compelling need to write this book at this particular time? Well, it's funny, the book came out now, but it was really a six or seven year journey to write the book. I tried to write the book many times. And of course, I had different editors telling me to write it in different fashions. But basically what I discovered when I was first studying employee engagement a long time ago was that employee engagement was much more complicated than a lot of the IO psychologists thought. There were issues of pay and management techniques and workload and well-being and things that we now think are very obvious. And when I went through lots and lots of data in Glassdoor to try to understand what was driving high-performing companies relative to employee engagement, I discovered that there were all sorts of patterns that were related between the Glassdoor data and the financial and business data of these companies. And so I dug into all of the ratings of you know these companies that I was analyzing. And in the appendix, I go through all this analysis and how I did this. And I looked at them, and many of them I knew quite well because I knew their HR practices. And I realized there were a lot of common threads that were management practices that were differentiating these companies. And that eventually turned in this book. And right in the middle of writing the book, I sold our original company to Deloitte and spent six and a half years at Deloitte consulting with companies on digital transformation and technology-related changes in their business environment. And I realized that these were not just management tips and management techniques. They were existential changes in the way organizations function in an economy that was changing. And of course, the pandemic accelerated many, many of these changes you know, dramatically. So the book ended up coming out at a very good time, but it wasn't exactly written for this time. <laughs> yeah, well, the timing is everything and it's certainly working out. 
So there's so many ways to make a business irresistible, but let's start by focusing on skills and the skills gap. We know companies are having a tough time attracting and retaining workers with the necessary skills. In fact, we just did a, a survey called Closing the Skills Gap. And in that, we surveyed 600 HR professionals. 69% of the companies feel that they have a skills gap, which is up from 2021, which was 55%. So I've got two questions for you here. The first is, do you believe there's a skills gap? And second, explain the three different types of skills in your vernacular, because I know that helps us to really start to understand what, what skills are. Well, first of all, I don't know what the 31% of companies who don't think they have a skills gap are doing because everybody has a skills gap all the time, and that is the nature of business. But it is getting worse for several reasons. First of all, the rate of change in the business environment is unprecedented. There was a study, a CEO survey that came out last week by PwC, two or 300 CEOs, and 40% of them said that they don't believe their company as it exists will be in business in 10 years. That's how much disruption's going on. And, you know, this is automobile companies getting into electric cars. This is oil companies getting into chemicals and solar energy. This is pharmaceutical companies getting into, you know, mRNA. Every single industry, telco companies getting into 5G. I mean, everywhere you look, companies are getting into some adjacent business area or some new technology that they've never done before, and that is a skills problem. So it is a fundamental challenge of running a company is developing people, understanding the skills you're missing, and building the best strategy for continuously developing those skills. And many, many of the seven secrets in the book are related to that of fundamental problem. You know, as far as the types of skills, you know, I really think they fall into three general categories. There's technical skills, and we all have technical skills in all of our jobs, whether you're an operator in a, you know, power plant, or you're driving a truck, or you're somebody like me who has to use various tools. There's managerial, there's professional skills about the industry you're in, and those are somewhat less important as than they used to be because people are flipping between industries at a very high rate right now. And the third are the human skills, the power skills, the relationship skills, the leadership skills that are absolutely rated the most important in every single survey that ever comes out. Because you can learn technical skills relatively easily. It takes a long time to get good at them. But, you know, the human skills, you're kind of born with some of them. And they're a little bit harder to learn. So all three of these areas are essential to companies. And I don't know who those 31% are that don't have a skills gap, but I think they're probably deluding themselves. They probably do too. Sure. So I, I want to jump into the power skills a little bit. You know, help us understand, you know, what what is a human skill, power skill? I sometimes use the word soft skill. I mean, maybe you can get it all matched up for us here. Well, okay. So the original word soft skill was coined long before I got into this to compare it to a hard skill. And the idea was, oh, math, science, engineering, those are hard. Leadership, management, collaboration, those are easy, so they're soft. And so, you know, that was in some sense a bad characterization from the very beginning, but that's where it started from. What I found in my own research and the clients that I talked to is that the soft skills by far were more important than the hard skills, as I said before. And so one of the things that struck me and the way I came up with this idea of the word power skills is right before the pandemic, we were having a meeting at UC Berkeley near where I live with a bunch of CHROs and several professors from Berkeley. And one of the professors was the head of a psychology group called the Greater Good Science Center. And she discussed the drivers of happiness and happiness is driven by things like forgiveness, care, communication, flexibility, a sense of awe, things that are very human things you think about as your mother or your caretaker. You don't think about them in business at all. And she gave us this presentation. This was before the pandemic. And I went to all these CHROs. I stood up and I said, okay, I just want to ask you guys a question. How many of you have any of these words in your corporate competency models, your leadership models, or your you know corporate vision and mission. 
and nobody raised their hands. Nobody was interested in any of this soft, squishy, feely stuff. Then you fast forward four years to where we are now through the pandemic, and everyone is talking about flexibility and care and listening and forgiveness because you can't run your company without it. And so what, what basically we've shown, and I think most people know this, is that these soft power skills are by far the most important skills of all. This is what creates followership. This is what creates a sense of trust. This is what creates a sense of loyalty and belonging in companies. Teaching somebody how to do something technical is great. You need that too. But those are trainable. So power skills are very big. And also because they're so hard to develop, they get a lot of attention in the, in the community. Absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe we can jump into the, the you just mentioned training. How can companies, you know, really think about developing these power skills and not just assume you're either, you know, born with empathy or you're born with the collaboration or you're born with the ability to inspire others and some of these other areas that you're talking about here, you know, what are the kinds of tools of the trade here to, to get these power skills into the, your company? Well, you know, unlike technical skills, you can't sort of train people to be these, do these things. It's a little more complicated, but we just are finishing a big study on leadership, which we call irresistible leadership. It's not published yet, but I'll tell you a little bit of what's in there. So among the very top findings and the most important practices, number one is to codify and describe the specific behaviors that characterize success in your company. What are the behaviors that make your company successful that you want to reinforce? For example, when Microsoft went through their turnaround, when Satya Nadella joined, he was very vocal about this in his book, they, they wanted to implement a growth mindset because the prior management team did not have a growth mindset. It was a combative, competitive company and it was, I'm smarter than you, so you shut up and listen to me. And he said, we're going to be the opposite of that. Everybody is going to listen and everybody's going to grow. That concept, that behavior was reinforced on walls, placards in the wall, on behaviors. People were calling each other out for not having a growth mindset. They formally trained people on what this means. And look at Microsoft today. They're, the, I think, the largest or second largest market cap company by tech, in tech for sure. And if you don't describe those things in a way people understand them behaviorally, you can go to a course at Harvard, you can go to a course at Wharton, you can take a course in collaboration. It doesn't, you don't know what to do. So that's number one. Number two is creating a leadership model of some kind that refers to these power skills that is relevant to your business. Why do we want leaders to behave this way? Why does it make a difference for our company, for our strategy, for our customers, for our stakeholders, for our supply chain, etc.? Because in every industry, there are different management styles. Pick whatever industry you like, retail or oil and gas or whatever it is. Some companies are very innovative and creative. Some companies are very customer service oriented and focused on the, the customer experience. Other companies are focused on you know, market domination and monopoly practices, whatever that is, those strategies have to be embodied into a set of leadership behaviors so leaders know what is valued and what is not. Then you can put together training and workshops and simulations and feedback and coaching and all sorts of things on top of that. But just taking somebody and giving them a psychologist as a coach and saying, hey, you know, why don't you try to be a better leader? I mean, they don't know what to do because every company is different. And leadership, great leadership at Google is not the same as great leadership at Exxon. Well, that's really helpful. And it's, uh, you know, going to be a challenge for these companies to shift, but it's obviously the data is pretty conclusive here and hopefully we're moving in the right direction. So I want to zoom out a little bit and bounce back to just where we are in the job market today, because there's some really conflicting pieces of data I'm trying to reconcile in my mind. You know, we, we're, we're recording this sort of early 2023 in February, got, I think since 1969 in the US, you know, the, the unemployment, the lowest it's ever been. On the same time, you're getting a lot of headlines, you know, maybe the media is stretching these headlines around layoffs at 
companies that people are familiar with. You also have a lot of CEOs talking about an impending recession and all these kinds of things. You know, what what should we be thinking about right now as it relates to these somewhat conflicting trends that things are getting worse, but we're actually at historic unemployment low levels? Or is this storm coming and we just don't know it yet? How are you thinking about this? Okay, well, I, I, I just wrote a big article on this, and it's very clear to me, it's not as confusing as it seems if you if you know some of the data. We're basically in a very, very significant war for talent and war for people, because even though there is an economic slowdown and a lot of companies overhired, they overhired because they overshot. We had 15 years of zero interest rates, too much money, too much capital, too much speculation, and most companies grew without really planning their growth. So just because there's layoffs doesn't mean the economy is falling apart. The economy is not falling apart. People are buying things. Many companies are making reasonable profits and they are looking for workers to fulfill demand and particularly in frontline workers, nurses, retail workers, hospitality workers, transportation, there are not enough humans. Now, the reason we have this terribly low unemployment rate is a fundamental change that is going to be with us for a long time. The birth rate is very low. There have been a lot of articles about this for many years. And every major economy, China, Germany, the UK, Japan, now the United States, Northern Europe, is not replacing workers fast enough. The education system is beginning to worry if they're gonna have enough students to pay tuition. The average fertility rate is around, in the United States, it's 1.7. The replacement is 2.1. We're not having enough children. People are postponing getting married. So the number of human beings is declining, and a lot of baby boomers my age are retiring. And frankly, the pandemic also really alienated a lot of young workers who are a little bit more checked out than they would normally be. This idea of quiet quitting is, is actually true. They're a little bit unhappy about the fact that inflation has maybe dashed their dreams of buying a house or doing what they wanted to do. So, so we really have a massively stressed workforce that is not able to keep up with the demands of business. Now, for employers, who I spend most of my time with, the solution is to retain people, take really good care of the people you have, train them, develop them, and redesign jobs as fast as you can with all of these wonderful tools we have to reduce the number of people needed to do the work you have. So we look at it as we call it the four R's, recruit, retain, reskill, redesign, all in one. Because you're not gonna be able to recruit your way out of these challenges. There just aren't enough people. Absolutely, that that is the truth. So I wanna think about another big trend that's going on right now that is, especially in the education space, getting a ton of waves. I'm not sure the application of it all yet, which is around automation, AI, and chat GPT. And, you know, it's a big headline right now that, you know, once again, you see this from time to time that, you know, we're going to, we're going to, everything's going to get automated now. You're going to go to college and you're not going to show up and just kind of ask, ask this technology to write your term paper for you, or you're going to, you're going to, show up to work and, and ask your employer what to do, and then you're going to ship out a bunch of work you know, to some sort of bot that exists out there. So how are you thinking about this trend? I know you've talked a lot about automation. People get scared about you know, there's going to be all sorts of job losses, and it's going to really disrupt the economy. What, what's your latest thinking? Obviously, JatGPT is just a, a, you know, a, a gateway to talking about automation here. Well, let me, let me answer two parts of that. One is, is automation eliminating jobs? And the second is, what do we do about it? The answer is no, it's never eliminated any jobs. We have too many jobs right now, and we certainly have an awful lot, an awful lot of technology during my life. I mean, I, I used to work before we had even voicemail. We had, we had basically phones and little pink slips of paper where you wrote down messages. And every time a new piece of technology comes along, there are some jobs that become routine or eliminated, and those human beings take on higher level work. So the work that went into, you know, maybe copywriting stupid things that, you know, weren't really worth your time now is done by a computer, and you're working on more advanced editing or more advanced creative work. Now, for I'm not in the education industry. I think there is a challenge for educators to make sure you know what it is you are teaching people 
And if all you're asking them to do is write a paper and you don't know why you're asking them to write a paper and what they're supposed to learn out of that, then, you know, if they put it into chat GPT, you know, you're not really teaching them anything. So that's a, that's a challenge. But in the business community, what happens over and over again, every time there's a new automation wave, and this has gone on as long as I've been alive, is the companies have to look at this as a commodity and they have to build value on top of it. Because believe me, if you think you're going to differentiate yourself with ChatGPT, no, you're not, because everybody else is going to use it too. What's going to be different is how you use it and what you add on top of it and how you design solutions around it and how you apply it. So, so every piece of technology that felt like it was going to disrupt work turned into a new fundamental base level. Now, you know, is this making work better or worse? Let me just give you one piece of information on that. I went through, I just had a big meeting in Europe on this. I looked at the economic data over the last 35 years, since the early 1960s, and I looked at the inflation rate versus the average wage of all workers in the United States. That data is available in the Federal Reserve. And what you see is that while inflation has gone up a certain amount over the last 35 years, wages have gone up on average 31% higher. And what that tells me is that despite all of the automation and fear we've had about machines messing up our work, work has gotten better because the average worker is making 30%, 31% more above inflation than they were in the 1960s. Now, that's not a huge increase over a long period of time, but what it tells me is that this constant evolution of technology is making work better for humans as well as making our economy grow at a faster rate and a more productive rate. So I'm not worried about it at all. There's going to be a year or two of jockeying around where different people figure out how to use this better than others. And just like digital and web and all the other things, you know, there'll be early adopters that'll, that'll, you know, probably surpass their peers. So, you know, the challenge for business people is you got to learn how to use this stuff and take advantage of it. Because if you wait, somebody's going to come along and disrupt you. But that's the way business has always been. I, I think it's been that way since I got out of college. I want to jump back to the skills gap. And, and really, sometimes we talk about this is you know, upskilling and reskilling, skilling in general. Employers spend a ton of money, whether it's through tuition reimbursement, a $30 billion industry, just corporate training, hundreds of billions of dollar industry. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, learning and development. I know this is like you said, you got your start here to a certain degree. You know, what were we doing 30 years ago, 20 years ago? What's what's kind of happening now and what do you see coming in the future? And in particular, one thing that you've talked a lot about that I want to jump into is these capability academies, which is really getting my attention right now. So I'd love to you to kind of, I don't know if that's the right place to end in this continuum of L&D, but I'll <laughs> let you take us wherever you want to go. Okay. All right. I'll give you a very short history lesson. For most of us that are my age, training used to be a classroom experience. So you'd get in a plane, you'd go to a training class, you'd stay there for three days, and you'd fly home. And you might get a book to take with you. And it worked pretty well because you had a lot of hands-on experience, you met a lot of people, and you took your reference materials back and you did remember a fair amount of it. And then along came the internet around the early 2000s and we stuck all that stuff online and we built all, the, all these online courses and we were amazed at how cheap it was to train people, but we realized it didn't quite work as well as we wanted because there wasn't a lot of interactivity. There weren't exercises. You couldn't meet other people. There weren't, wasn't an easy way to ask questions. So we went through this, you know, 10 years of building a more blended, multimodal experience to online learning, whereas today a good 30 or 40% of the training that people go through is on, done online with a whole variety of complementary experiences. But then something else happened. You know, Apple obsoleted Flash, YouTube came along, Twitter came along, and all of a sudden everybody posted content everywhere. And we had video courses on YouTube, and we had video courses on TikTok, and you know, everything became an opportunity to learn. And these systems became very complex. And the learning systems that we bought in the early 2000s, they were called learning management systems, just couldn't keep up. And so 
about five or six years ago, we would go to companies and they would let's say, well, you know, I got so much stuff around here. I don't know who can find anything. I mean, it's just videos and articles and documents. Well, that is getting fixed with a new wave of technology, which is the skills-based learning experience platforms and other systems that index content, identify the skills or topics and help you find stuff. So now we're in this world where you can go into a job in a company and you can log into LinkedIn Learning or Udemy or any of these libraries, and including the ones you guys sell, and, and click around. And within about a minute, you can find exactly what you want to learn and you can watch it or you can listen to it or you can participate in it. So we've got this massive you know, availability democratization of learning that's taking place. So it's really marvelous. However, it's got a problem. I need to know what to learn. I need to know why I need to learn this and what value is it going to be to me in my job if I learn it and nobody knows that I've learned it. So, and because meanwhile, the company, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago, is moving into this new business area and they really want me to learn this stuff over here that I don't know anything about. So this, you know, perceived solution of democratizing learning was not working for people. And what I discovered as I went out and met with a lot of companies is what really smart companies were doing is they were saying, let's have a more strategic conversation about the business capabilities we need to build to grow and adapt. And then let's get all the learning aligned to that. And let's look at it not just as courses, let's look at it as courses, mentors, developmental assignments, job rotations, you know, real work that can teach people how to do this. And I decided to call that a capability academy. And the reason I called it that was because we were building one of these for HR. And I realized nobody wants another 500 courses. They want to know that, that they want to go to a place to learn that might have courses, it might have experts, it might have videos, it might have articles, it might have people to talk to. And the only analogy I could think of at the time was like a police academy or you know, something like that. So, so this is beginning to become a very, very common a paradigm for bringing all of these you know elements of content and experience together using the skills engines that are now available in corporations and so that's what it's all about and we have capability academies that are focused on safety at semex capabilities academies that are focused on marketing at Kraft Heinz capability academy for 5G at Ericsson capability academy for AI based chips at Intel mRNA at Moderna i mean once you understand the idea here this can be a really business transformation solution and that's really what L&D's been trying to do for all the years i've been affiliated with it so just to clarify a little bit are these folks like a police academy to go back to that is there a role at the end of the, the rainbow here of the Capability Academy? Is there a certification? Is there something, a credential? How are you thinking about that? No, there is. There's, there's, no, that, this is part of, part of the new thinking is if we believe safety, for example, in the case of Semex, is an existential issue for our company and everybody in the company needs to be trained on safety, we're going to certify that you understand our safety rules. Now, that may not apply to every domain of every capability academy, but yes, credential, certification, and then moving people into new roles that use these skills is part of this capability academy. And, you know, if you go to a police, I've never been to a police academy, but I assume what happens is when you go, you come back, you're certified on this new chokehold or this new gun or this new whatever policemen are trained to do. We have to do that because the rate of change in companies is so high. If you just throw a bunch of training out there and say, hey, we'd like everybody to learn about this, they may or may not be able to know, even know how to do that. So the other thing about a capability academy that's very different is there's a business sponsor. There's a business leader who's watching over this, who's setting the agenda with L&D's help and making sure that it's moving the needle in the right direction and that there's a problem that's being solved and it isn't just a bunch of training. And then we're asking ourselves at the end of the training, what was the ROI of that? It's really focused on a problem, so, uh, on solving a problem. And most companies can identify what those problems are once you just ask the questions this way. So, uh, you know, something that comes to mind when I'm trying to bring all this together, you know, we've been talking about competencies a lot in education and L&D, competency-based education, a big trend in higher ed. 
I know you've spoken about it as an as an old idea, or maybe it, you know, help me sort of connect the dots between skills, capabilities. You know, how should we be thinking about that? And competencies. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me give you guys a, just a two minute lecture that might help clear this up. So the word competency in HR goes back a long, long time to a part of a job description. So where competencies were used when I was involved with them was you basically had a book of competencies. You would buy a book. You guys probably sell books like this. And you would read through the competencies. And as a management team, you would sit down and say, okay, we want our salespeople to have these eight competencies. So you would attach it to the job description, stick it in the HR management system, and now you would select people, develop people, assess people, and promote people based on these competencies. And it was a big mess. There were hundreds and hundreds of competencies sprinkled around in HR. They were sort of you know, used and sort of not used. They would fall out of date. People hated to maintain them. It was hard to align content towards the competency. And there was no real science to why this competency was associated with this job. I mean, it was good guessing and good you know, observation, but, but it was a very static thing. So if you fast forward now, 20, 25 years, 30 years later, now we have this idea of skills. A skill is actually a very poorly defined word. Microsoft Excel is a skill. Creating a pivot table is a skill. Artificial intelligence is a skill. Every algorithm of artificial intelligence is a skill. Salesforce.com is a skill. Everything that's written down on a resume as a requirement for this job is a skill. Every word. So a skill is essentially a word or a small number of words. And so what's been happening in the skills world is we have software tools that scan job descriptions, resumes, and content and identify these skills. So you can go out when you're recruiting somebody and you can, you know, let's suppose you have a job and you know certain skills are needed. You can actually look into their resume and get AI-based search and determine with a pretty good level of accuracy whether this person has some amount of the skills you need. And you can use skills for recruiting. You can use skills for internal placement of people. You can use it for pay. And you can use it, obviously, for learning and development. And that paradigm is so different from competencies because the skill libraries are always changing. Every day, I have a relationship with a company called Lightcast that creates an ongoing skills academy or skills taxonomy, and they sell data. Every day, they have thousands of new skills that are discovered in jobs around the United States. So we're moving to, at least in the corporate world, I don't know about the education world, but in the corporate world, we're moving to this infrastructure where companies are going to know pretty well what skills they have in different parts of the company, what skills are trending in the outside market, and what skills they need. And the competency modeling that's been around forever will probably be used mostly in compliance and regulatory jobs, in very formally defined jobs. Like if you're a nurse and you're not trained and certified on giving injections or anesthesia, it doesn't matter what your skills profile looks like. You either know how to do it or you don't know how to do it. That's a very formally defined competency. But but more and more companies are, you know, really segmenting that for this more compliance and regulatory oriented world. And then for white collar and soft skills related jobs, really using this new approach, which is skills-based hiring, skills-based development, skills-based mobility, and even skills-based pay. Excellent. So I, I want to jump to an important topic around you know, sourcing of talent, training of talent, apprenticeships. But before we get there, and as related to it, is, is this idea you've talked a lot about, which is learning in the flow of work. And so I'd like you to really expand on that. And what is it? Is this something that's obviously it's something that's always existed? Is this something that companies are more formally focused on to increase the, you know, the skills that are in the company? It was an idea that came to me, and I wasn't the only one that had thought of it, around maybe eight or seven or eight years ago, when we were first decomposing training content into small pieces and creating little mini videos and mini articles, and we didn't have podcasts yet, and there was all this training content sprinkled all over companies' systems, and we were trying to figure out how to use it. And what the study, what research and learning shows, is that there's a there's a flow to learning. 
during the early parts of a new topic, when you're starting a new job, for example, you have a very steep learning curve. And you need very formal education to get yourself up that learning curve. You need a, you need a course, you need a, a mentor, a boss, or somebody to show you how to do your job. And then as you become more and more fluent and you know how to do the job, you look for smaller and smaller increments of learning to complement and, and supplement and improve what you're getting good at. And then, you know, as you reach another level and you get promoted, you need more formal training. So we have this jumping back and forth between, you know, what we would call macro learning and what we used to call micro learning. And so what I used to talk about with many companies was don't just throw it all out there and expect the employee to know what to do when, put it into the flow of work organize it so that they get the right type of content at the right point in time. Now, this was long before we had Slack, Microsoft Teams, you know, these tools we have now. Now we have these really, you know, intelligent workplace tools that can do this. And they can sense based on the tenure or the job, the job you're in or the activity that you're going through, when there's something you probably should read or visit or look at or learn, in a particular job. So the whole idea of learning in the flow of work is stop throwing content at people and make it relevant to the stage they are in their job or their role or their activities or their assignment. I mean, it isn't really a gigantic idea, but it certainly was a big change at the time. And now it's just becoming a common way to design what we call experiential learning or a great learning experience. So I want to talk about apprenticeships because it's a topic that seems to get Universal appeal, you got both sides of the aisle. President, the last three presidents have advocated for it in different ways. And yet, at least in this country, in the U.S., it, it doesn't get a ton of adoption outside of a few different careers. What is your thoughts on, on this way to sort of increase talent pools? We talked about we've got, a, you know, obviously a sourcing problem throughout the economy. What are you thinking about apprenticeships today? Well, you know, my world is taking care of corporations. I'm not trying to take care of the whole society. But, but I'll tell you what it means relative to corporations. It has a big, big, big role. There's this innovation that we call a career pathway. And the idea of a career, and we got this out of the healthcare research we were doing. The idea of a career pathway is we have a shortage of 2.1 million nurses in the United States. Becoming a nurse takes years. It's not a month of training. It's a year or two of education, training, apprenticeship, what's called preceptor training, where you're actually, you know, observed by somebody and you have to prove that you know how to do something. And these hospitals cannot find enough people. There aren't enough nurses graduating from nursing school. So what they discovered is we can take much lower level workers who are doing ambulatory work or administrative work, or maybe they're cleaner doing cleaning work in the hospitals. And in a period of two years, we can turn them into nurses. And most of them would love to do that if they have the right attitude. But it's going to take time. It's going to take education. It's going to take training. And it's going to take apprenticeship. So inside of a company, every time you have a talent gap, which, by the way, happens all the time in just about every company I've ever visited, apprenticeship is one of the modes of getting people into that level of capability and skills that is very, very powerful. And it's not only good for the a participant who is the apprentice, but the person who is helping that person is also learning a lot and becoming better value to the company. So it creates a golden circle of value from the experts who are creating apprenticeships and the employees that are participating in apprenticeships. And there's an added value to this too. The number one reason people leave companies is because they don't think they're going anywhere. So if you're paying somebody $15 an hour and they're pushing around people in wheelchairs and maybe they're being very nice, but they don't feel like they have a future, if somebody comes along and offers them $18 an hour or $20 an hour to drive a truck, they're gone. They're going to leave. But if you can give them a path to progress and help you fill this talent shortage you have in the nursing population, they're going to stay. So there's all sorts of really positive applications of apprenticeship inside of corporations. You know, as far as the rest of society, I, I, I think it's more of a business model problem for the education industry that somebody has to figure out how to make money at this. But it's a pretty well proven approach. And, and you know, if we don't do it at a, at a society level, I think corporations are just going to do it themselves. 
That's interesting. And I want to jump into that because we discovered a model that is feels a little bit like an apprenticeship model several years back, specifically around software developers. There's such a supply demand imbalance and certainly was sort of coming out of COVID. And we discovered this model that now we call it, a few of us in the industry, hire, train, deploy, where mostly global corporations that have big needs around tech talent, big needs around diversity specifically, like not just window dressing, but things that they're serious about, big needs around weeding off of, of contractors and outsourcing. And you know, this is an, a really interesting model that we discovered because it sort of eliminates a lot of the friction for the employer. They get to try before they buy, right? So they're working with essentially Wiley, because we're in this business now as an education company, but we're forced into a staffing sort of model, right? Where where we are taking the friction away for the employer. So how do you get a job-ready talent that you know is going to come in and add value? Well, it's working with the employer, understanding their needs, the locations, the skill sets, and then training for that. So there's the boot camp sort of aspect, which is an industry that's evolved over the last 10 years. And between me and you, I, I don't think it's been the direct-to-consumer boot camp model around tech has been that successful. So it hasn't scaled. From the learner perspective, you know, they're graduating college or recently graduated or what have you, and they're trying to find a job and a career, right? So for them, you're not going to charge them yet another cost to get another degree or another certificate or another something. So it's, they become an employee effectively. So I'm wondering, you know, one is, have you heard of this model? Do you think it can scale beyond what to me is sort of a small sector, right? It's, it's emerging technology talent, which is for us, it's big, but it's not the, it's not like a big market in general. I think, well, Todd, I, first of all, I, I want to applaud you guys for doing it because I think it's a huge market and very, very badly needed. I think the general education industry has left out this final point of educating people, which is getting a job. They sold them a degree or they sold them a certificate or they sold them a boot camp, and then they left it up to the student to figure out what to do with it. And that has worn awfully thin on people. And on the other side, the employers want to spend more money to bring talent into their company, even if it's an early level. So I completely agree with what you're doing. I, I, I saw this in healthcare years ago where large healthcare networks would partner with community colleges and they would design the curriculum for and with the community college. And they would say, look, if you train a thousand people on this, we'll hire them all. We guarantee you we'll hire them. So I think whatever you guys are doing, I, I hope it's magnificently successful because it is absolutely the right way to go. Yeah, I mean, so far so good. It just it, I'm not sure how applicable it is outside of these acute shortages that you're talking about here. So that's that's where we're but we've got plenty to work on. Yeah, right. Once there once there's enough people who know these skills, that that model isn't as necessary, but but I think it's a great especially with the talent shortage that we have, we're going to have to pull people into these new domains faster than the normal educational experience and and this is the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to um, a large president, president of a large healthcare training company, basically, and we talk, we were talking a lot about medical assistants, medical coders, billers. I mean, there's just an insatiable appetite for those kinds of individuals, yet there's so much friction there. And I'm like, well, you should bring the higher train deploy model to that because you'll attract people to get trained for free. Actually, get you pay them to get trained if they can get through it all. But this is a great segue to higher ed, which is very close to my heart. And you've already kind of been tapping into it. I know you're a big proponent of a liberal arts education, you know, but as you think about how higher education interacts with corporations, I mean, you talk, the way you started off your, the L&D experience, like going to, you know, I, I, you know, Wharton or one of these places, you get a $30,000 certificate and something. I mean, they, Higher Ed's been working extremely closely in many different ways with employers for a long time, but there does seem to be some pretty large gaps in the adaptation. Like, for example, all these alternative credentials and short courses that are now evolving. It's, you know, some of it's coming through higher ed, but they're sort of reactive to it. How are you thinking about higher ed's role in sort of solving these capability academies and some of these other needs, skill shortages? Well, I mean, higher education serves many roles in society, research, general education, preparing people for work. I mean, a lot of really essential things that have nothing to do with an individual and employer. But 
I'm on the board of the UC Berkeley Executive Ed Program for the Hobbs Business School. So I'm involved directly with them. And they partner directly with corporations all the time. And so all of the curriculum and certificates and, and various big programs they put together are designed to meet the needs of corporations. And that's what more higher education institutions need to do. They still have to do basic research. They still have to do basic education. But the closer they can get to their corporate partners, the better they're going to, their students are going to be prepared. And basically, the better I think their brand will be over the long run. And that tends to be you know, sort of episodic, depending on the city and depending on the institution, depending on the, who, the, who the employers are that are close by or seem to be in the same domain. And I think the other interesting thing, Todd, you may know more about this than me, but I think the research is showing that the number of students is going to decline. So this is a little bit of a survival tactic for the higher education industry as a whole, is to become a little more aligned to the corporate or you know employer population that they serve than just doing basic general education. And I, and I think the other thing that this does is it makes sure that the topics and the courses and the certificates and programs that are developed in higher ed are always relevant to what's going on in the business community for those people that want to go into business. So, so I, I think it's becoming probably a bigger, bigger topic every year, and it probably will continue to be as the labor market continues to become more competitive. Yeah, you know, there's a deal that was done many years ago between Starbucks and Arizona State University that was like not a it was not a little sea change for higher ed. It was a big sea change, right? They 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 I think they lowered their price point by like 40 something percent at ASU. Obviously, ASU has been so market driven over many years around designing mostly online in the online education world. And so that was a pretty momentous moment and you know, you have now have, I don't know how many, 10,000 or more colleagues from Starbucks that have gone through this program, gotten a degree, and hopefully retained and, and are better equipped to do their jobs. I haven't seen that that sort of similar thing catch fire, whether it's on the employer side or the university side, because it's it takes a lot to change the cost model that dramatically, for example, or or other changes that had to, to operate something at scale. Well, one of the ones that we were very involved in, there's a company called Guild Education, if you're familiar with them, I'm sure you guys know them. And they have very carefully uh, architected specific solutions for corporations, one company at a time, that allow them to leverage and negotiate with educational institutions to build these career pathways. So there's, there's intermediaries like Guild now that are building these bridges that are good for both sides. They're good for the education institutions and they're good for the employers. I think for Starbucks to do it, I'm sure it was a giant project for Starbucks. They probably put a lot of time and energy into it. And it wasn't about making coffee. It was about something they weren't really experts at. So now there are experts that can help companies do this. And I just have to believe the way the labor market's going, there just has to be more of this. It's just gonna continue. Don't you think, though, that at some point it does need to come back to some measurable outcomes? And where I'm going with this, we've been a little bit associated with the Amazon Career Choice Program. They're a bit of a unicorn when it comes to investing in their employees. <laughs> and who knows if that's changing now because of some of the layoffs. But, you know, they very famously have talked about outboarding or whatever the term is like, hey, become a nurse. Like, we'll pay you to do that. That doesn't really, in the long run, the super long run, maybe there's an indirect way to talk about how that recruits frontline people. And, but, you know, I guess at some point you're going to invest a lot in an employee. That, that particular program, which I know a lot about, I don't know if it is doing exactly what they said it was going to do. I think the more pragmatic programs where one company or one industry is working on very specific roles for that company work extremely well. I mean, I talked to a company the other day, I won't mention the company name, who spent $50 million on one of these career pathway programs. And I asked the CHRO, how did you convince your CFO that it was worth $50 million to do this? And she said, once we went through the three to five year challenges of hiring, retention, training, and difficulty developing these roles, it paid for itself. So companies can throw money at this if it's focused on the needs that they have. So, so I, I think it's a huge trend, and I, I think it will continue. Yeah, it's really important that, that the CFOs are included in this, right? Because a lot of the investment in education is, is going to be looked at as a cost in the short term, right? 
Well, and the other thing this does is it takes tuition reimbursement, which is a which is basically a benefit that nobody measures at all, and it turns it into something that's very pragmatic and easy to understand that seems to have a very high value. So, so there's a lot of this money is already being spent. It just isn't being targeted towards these strategic problems. So, so I I, I do think it's going to become bigger and bigger. You mentioned career pathways. I'd love to just make sure I I, I fully grasp that. I mean, I was reading about Walmart, which I think you mentioned, you know, one of the, I think that's one of the customers of Guild and they talked about needing farm pharmacy technicians, right? And is that an example of, because they're building their, you know, their, their benefits and, and that the healthcare side of the house, is that an example of like, Hey, we need to create a pathway for farm techs. Yeah, I could show you one. Exactly. The reason we call it a pathway instead of a path is it isn't like from engineer to senior engineer to director of engineering. It's it's to move from point A to point B. And point A might be, you know, over on this part of the company doing this kind of stuff. And point B is in a totally different role and different job family. And usually a career pathway requires education, not just training. And maybe certification and then apprenticeship and other things. So it's a more complex job path. But uh, the ROI is very high. That's what it seems like. Josh, we've covered a lot of ground here. We're going to wrap up. Is there anything, one or two points you want our listeners to walk away understanding from our conversation today? Well, just getting back to the book for one minute, I mean, fundamental to all of these wonderful topics, Todd, is the belief system that the people are the most important asset you have in your company. Because every one of these things we talked about looks like an expense if you don't think about that. And so I would remind the people listening to this podcast is before you rush around and try to get somebody to do all the stuff we're talking about, you have to have a fundamental conversation about, do you agree with me that investing in our people is one of the most important assets we have to grow our business? And if they don't agree with you, send them a copy of my book and let them read it and maybe it'll (laughs) convince them. (laughs) I love it. All right. So I asked this of all of my guests. Part of what we love about education is that we all have learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? That's a good question. I mean, I I admire many, many of the clients I meet. I think the guy that I'm learning from the most at the moment is somebody you don't know. He's the CEO of our company. His name is Bill Pelster. He was the guy who acquired our company at Deloitte. He now works for me. And He's a very seasoned business person, and he has the wonderful ability to give me very specific feedback that I need to hear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, not everybody does that, and I appreciate that from him. So right now, I would say he's my guy. I love it. That's (laughs) courageous, and that's definitely a champion of learning for you. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Until next time, this has been An Educated Guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an educated guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universityservices.wiley.com.